You're listening to the Bellevue Baptist Gaston Podcast. Today's message from Pastor Colt Hudson is part of our current sermon series through the Gospel of John. We pray that this message will be a blessing to you. Thanks for listening. What an awesome time of worship that we've had together this morning. It is so good to be together in the house of the Lord and to worship Him through the singing of songs, praying, giving to His kingdom. But now we come to that part of worship where we hear from His Word. Again, our prayer is that it would dwell richly in us today. So go ahead and be turning to John chapter 11, verses 17 through 37. Again, that is John chapter 11, verses 17 through 37. And today we are going to be continuing looking at this encounter uh, between Jesus and the family of Lazarus um, after Lazarus' death. And as you're turning today, I want to I make a connection between something that we're going to be talking about today and a situation that many of us are, are likely familiar with this week. Um, if you're a football fan, you know that back on Monday night in the course of an NFL game, there was a player who went into cardiac arrest. Uh, they stopped the game, and through the midst of this kind of tragic situation, there was this outpouring of support and thoughts and prayers and, and that sort of thing. And prayer suddenly became a hot topic. And uh, there were some awesome moments that came out of that because pretty much, I mean, everyone in that community was praying. But it also revealed a lot of misconceptions about prayer. And and there were things that that kept coming up, whether it was uh, in the television uh, where people were talking about it, whether it was on social media, or just in conversations that I had with people this week. They would say things about prayer and how it impacted this situation. For instance, some of the things I heard were, uh, was this one. If we pray hard enough, we can convince God to change his mind and save this man. Or, if all of us pray, God can't possibly deny that. These are, not simply, uh, these are simply just not accurate. And, and to beyond that is a misrepresentation of God and prayer. And it's continued to the point that Hamlin himself, thankfully and amazingly, is now able to speak to the public. But he wrote last night he was thankful for the beauty of all faiths praying for him. Now while we can applaud much of the spirit of this situation, we can applaud the fact that God has been good and gracious in uh, sparing this man, giving him health. While we can be thankful that people are thinking and talking about prayer, We can't always applaud the thoughts that people have on prayer. Because, quite honestly, that's just not how it works. Prayer is crying out to the God of the Bible in the name of Jesus in faith. It's not changing God's mind, it's changing our hearts. For God knows all things and has set forth everything that there is. So he doesn't change his mind because God can't learn anything. Because prayer, it changes our hearts. And we cannot just uh, pray to whoever... But we pray again to the God of the Bible or we're praying falsely and sinfully. Now what's so sad in all of this is that many of the people who were sharing these things and applauding this language and I'm having these conversations with are claiming to be believers. And what this does is this reveals to us something that is so often difficult. And that is that Christians, oftentimes we believe things and we say things that we should know better than to believe or say. And sadly, this has been a situation that has occurred really throughout history. Oftentimes, believers, people who claim to love the Lord, and people who do genuinely love God, sometimes we can be misled and we can have these misconceptions. And what we're going to see today is that there were people in this story that we're looking at, people who deeply and dearly loved Jesus. The Bible has reiterated that. They deeply loved Jesus. But they have several theological misconceptions about the tragedy going on in their life and how God works. And so what I want to do today is take a look at some of these misconceptions that show up in the lives of of Mary and Martha, in the crowds and the people. Because when Jesus arrives in Bethany to raise Lazarus from the dead, he primes a pretty dismal group of people. And here's the thing about it. For us as Christians, our hope, our joy, our peace, the things that keep us going, and it comes from rightly understanding who God is. 
If we have a misconception or a misunderstanding of who God is and we have this wrong viewpoint of God, then when the moment the rubber hits the road and we find ourselves in a tragic situation, we're going to realize that we don't have maybe the joy and hope that we thought we do because we have been having these misconceptions that have given us a wrong view of God. And so we're not thinking rightly. And when we don't think rightly, we often (laughs) fall directly into sin. And so today, we're going to look at these misconceptions, we're going to look at this dismal group of people, and and we're going to pick up this story today. So let's look at John chapter 11, verses 17 through 37. I'll be reading from the ESV, but you follow along in your translation. Verse 17 says, Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? And thus says the Lord's word to us this morning let's go to the Lord in a word of prayer and we'll continue on Father we come before you today thanking you for your word we're thanking you for your grace and your mercy we're thanking you for your goodness to us Father we are thankful that you love us that you have again shown us such grace But Father, now as we come to your word, we pray that you would help us to understand it. And Lord, by understanding it, Lord, that you would not only help us to understand it accurately and rightly, Lord, you would help us to have a better understanding of who you are, how you work, what you've called us to, and how we can live lives that are more pleasing to you. So Father, now in this place, we pray that you would help us through your word. Father, that by your grace in this place today, you would... Show us how we can put to death sin in our life. Lord, wrong conceptions of who you are. Father, we pray that you would show us how we can, again, walk more faithfully. How we can trust you in the midst of tragedy. Father, how above all else, we can have hope in only one person. And Lord, that is you. So, Father, we pray again today that all this, everything that is said, everything that is done, would be for your honor and your glory. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, today we pick up right after last week's situation. Um, If you weren't with us uh, last week, what we saw is that uh, Jesus receives a letter. And this letter tells him, This man, Lazarus, whom you love very much, is sick. We remember that Jesus uh, loves Martha and Mary and Lazarus. And that when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days where he was. And we remember, after this time, he told the disciples, look, we're going to go to Judea. Disciples were just crazily confused. Lord, why would you want to go back to this place where they tried to kill you? 
And he tells him that he has this appointed time to work. And his friend Lazarus is dead, but he was going to awaken him. Now earlier he had told the disciples that this sickness that Lazarus had, this death, this tragedy that was occurring, it would not end in death, but rather the purpose was to glorify God. And so what we see here is that Jesus has this mission that he is going on. He tells them clearly, Lazarus has died, and for your sake I'm glad I was not there so that you may believe. And he said, let's go to him. That's where we left off last week. Lazarus is dead. The disciples are confused and scared. But what we saw was that the tragic situation was not a result of something Lazarus did. It was for God's glory. And God uses the tragic situations in our life as well to glorify him. Today we see that Jesus waited until Lazarus was buried for four days, right? Verse 17 says, When Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. This is very significant. Now for us, we might not understand quite why that is so important, but for the Jews, this would have been a a big deal. You see, the Jews are a very superstitious group of people. Uh, They are, are very superstitious to the point that they falsely believe that the spirit of a dead person hung around for three days and could potentially find its way back. Uh, they believed that you know, there was this ghost or spirit. It would hang around the body for three days and then uh, you know, it could potentially, could potentially find its way back into the body during those three days and um, the person might live again. What happened with that is that many Jews would often hope for three days. Well, maybe the spirit will come back into the body. Right? Maybe. Just maybe. Reality, what we see here is that Lazarus, he was dead and in the tomb four days. Significance of the four-day time period is it made sure that Lazarus was good and dead. Um, to quote the famous theologian Jerry Clowers, he is D-E-D dead. To the point that next week we'll see that the family is worried about opening the tomb because they said, Lord, it stinks. Right? By now there's a stench. Lazarus is, is dead and decaying. And what happens for the Jews at that point is this would have been a time in which now Lazarus is gone. It's hopeless. He's gone. It's done. It's over. And today we see that Jesus meets with the family and he meets with these crowds. There's this great group of people with him, right? Mary and Martha obviously have a pretty good support group of, of friends and family. They've come to console them. And so Jesus is meeting with the family and he's meeting with the crowds and, and it's taking place in the backdrop of the tomb and his interactions with them. The things that they say, it reveals again some serious theological misconceptions on their part. Uh, Sadly, we often struggle with many of these same issues. And so it's, again, very important that we correct our thinking so that we can think rightly about God in our daily lives and our worship and in our sharing of the gospel as well. And so what I want to do is look at five misconceptions here today. The first one is this, misconception number one. Jesus has to work on our timetable or he isn't working at all. What's crazy to me is Mary and Martha, obviously, as sisters, are pretty in sync, right? They have kind of the same thought process to the point that both of them say the same thing when they see Jesus. What do they say? Lord, if you had been here, he wouldn't have died. This tragedy I'm going through, Lord, if you had been here, this would not have happened. The idea seems to be that they think Jesus is late. And again, we remember last week, they had urgently sent this letter to Jesus. Telling him Lazarus was sick. This was likely not just information, right? They're not sending him this letter just to say, hey, just so you know, Lazarus is sick. No, it's a a plea. It's a petition. It's almost like a prayer that he come and do something about it. Lord, this one whom you love is sick. And yet Jesus stays where he was for two more days because it was for God's glory. The situation is, is not ending in death. But Mary and Martha don't know that. And they were sure that if he had just been on time, this would never 
have happened. And how often do we face this same sort of issue? We think, oh God, you got to deal with this right this second. Right now. It has to be dealt with. Lord, if you, if you wait one more second, I can't possibly continue. I think some of this uh, is, is cultural for us. We live in a, in a world of, of instant gratification, right? Like we want things right this second, and uh, we don't know how to deal with it when it doesn't work. So I think to a degree, right, some of that is cultural, but uh, really what we see is this has been an issue for people for thousands of years. We get mad if God doesn't do what we want when we want it. We get irritated. God, how come you aren't answering me right now? How come you're not dealing with this? Don't you know I can't take this anymore? And then we, we, we sinfully start to imagine God must just be distracted or he's twiddling his thumbs or maybe he has something more important to deal with, right? God's got bigger fish to fry than me. That's simply not true. The Bible tells us in Psalm 121.4, Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. Right? God's not distracted. He, he's not busy doing something else. God is purposefully ordaining events for his glory and our ultimate good. See, Jesus was waiting, but that doesn't mean that he was not working. And this is the problem that we so often have, is that we get impatient and we want God to work what we want, when we want, because we only see part of the plan. We only see part of it. We see what's right in front of us. Right? I, I think about this in terms of, um, of horses. Uh, when I grew up, we, um, my dad restored wagons and buggies, and uh, we spent a lot of time with the Amish, and so uh, we loved to hook the horses up to the wagons and buggies, and we'd drive them. And um, I remember the, the blinders that they would put on the horse, right? It stays directly ahead. His focus is only once right in front of him. And a lot of times what we have to realize is that we have spiritual blinders on to a degree. We see what's right in front of us. But there's a whole other world of stuff going on around us that we often forget about. And this is especially true when we think about God's plan. It is so intricate and ornate that there is no maverick molecule, right, down to the minute details. There's not one little thing that's not doing what it's supposed to do. But at the same time, it's so massive and large that it encompasses the entire universe and everything that we know. It's a big plan. And, and so when we think about this, right, we, we have very limited ability to see everything. And that's why we get mad. Because based on what we see... God needs to be doing something right now. But if we saw what God sees, if we knew what God knows, we would want exactly what he has planned for us. Right, I, I'm struck by this story that I read many years ago. It's a story of a man who got up and knew he had a rough day of work ahead. Right, he woke up and he said, I just know it's going to be one of those days. And it seems like everything is going wrong. Right? He's had kind of just this string of things happening in his life. And, and he said, you know what, I'm, I'm going to pray. Lord, help me have a good day and let me get to work on time. Let me get to work on time. Help me have a good day. Let me get to work on time. And again, it seems like this day just goes just as wrong as it could have. He spills coffee on his dress shirt. He has to change because he's got this meeting. So he goes and he changes and he's saying, Lord, really, please, let me get to work on time. Let me have a good day. He gets his shirt changed. He goes outside and his car has a flat tire. So he wrestles with it, the jack doesn't want to work, the donut's being difficult, he has to just yank on that tire to get it off. At that point, he's got to go change again. He says, Lord, uh, are you listening to me? Please, God, I, I, don't, I don't care about anything, just please let me get to work on time. Let me have this good day, please. So he gets in his car and he gets on the road and he's commuting into the city and he's stuck in traffic and he's like, Lord! Why didn't you answer my prayer? 
Why, when I prayed for a good day and to get to work on time, did you not listen? And he said he's just indignant at God at this point. He's mad. He said he just starts slapping the steering wheel. God, why aren't you listening to me? He said he hit the steering wheel two times, and the third time he hit the steering wheel is when he heard the boom. It was so loud it shook his vehicle. And from his windshield, he could see his office building, the World Trade Center, had been hit by an airplane. His floor didn't make it out. And at that very moment, he said he began to weep because he realized that the Lord had answered his prayer just by saying no. He was mad that the Lord didn't do what he wanted when he wanted. You see, we need to realize that God's not concerned about time the way that we are. Right? He, he's eternal. He's always existed and always will exist. Right? There's no beginning and no end. And, and this is mind-boggling for us because we live in everything. Like for us, everything is based on time. We have a clear starting point and a clear ending point. And, and we live frustrated because we know that one day this life doesn't end. We have a limited amount of time, right? This, this life is going to end one day. That's it. And so we have a limited amount of time to get everything done. And so we feel this pressure that it has to be done just this way, just so, right now. But time for God, man, he, he invented all this in the first place. He's not bound by time the way that we are. And what we realize is, again, just what we talked about last week, God is always right on time for his perfect will. It may not be right on time for our will and what we want, but what we recognize is that his perfect will is always on time for his glory and our ultimate good. So stop throwing a pity party just because you feel like things aren't working out at the right time. Now, I say that knowing full good and well I have thrown such pity parties. We all have. We all have. But when we remember that there is no wrong time with God, there's not, a, there's not a late, there's not an early, there's just on time. And so we need to stop thinking, well, if God's not doing what I want him to do, that he's not doing anything. Reality, God is working everything out for his specific will. So that's the first misconception. Right, that Jesus has to work on our time. Our second misconception also comes from the words of Mary and Martha. This one is that Jesus' presence assures a miracle, right? that it guarantees a miracle. Because what are they saying? Again, Lord, if you had been here, this would not have happened. Right? So not only are they saying, hey, you didn't show up, and, and that's why this tragedy happened. What they're saying is, if you had been here, there is no way that this would have happened. This misconception is all about God's presence. Now, think about it this way. You ever been in a church service, right? Maybe like a, a revival or, a, you know, a special service. Or maybe even just like a really good Sunday. You know, we can't have those. A really good Sunday. Now, you didn't leave and you say maybe to your spouse or one of your friends, or you call somebody, and you say, man, God really showed up today. You ever said that? I remember going to pastor's meetings on Monday. I used to go to these Monday pastor's meetings for a while. and um, Invariably, when you meet with pastors on Monday, they talk about what happened on Sunday, and, and um, people will be like, man, God really showed up yesterday. And so I started probing this, because I was just curious, what does it mean for God to show up, in your opinion? I ask, like, what is the basis for that? What, what made it such a good day that you know God showed up? And usually there was a few things they would say. Right? Like some would be like, you know, the music was just so good. Right? Like, I mean, it was so good. We were, they, like, they did that thing where they, they play it and then they stop playing it. And you can just hear everybody singing and it's so beautiful. Right? And I say, amen. I love that as much as anybody. Right, but so they say, the, man, the music was just so good. I say, okay. Other people, I'd ask them, and, and I'd say, well, what makes you say that God really showed up yesterday? And they would say, well, you know, the preacher was just, he was on, man. He was hitting it. He was preaching the text, and it was just so good. And, man, he was so funny, and his stories were good, and I didn't fall asleep. And, like, it was just, it was really good. God just showed up today. 
And then the other ones, I'd ask them and say, well, you know, what do you mean? And they say, well, you know, there was just so many people here. I mean, it was, we were packed. We were loaded together. It was like it was Easter in the middle of July. Right? Like everybody was here. And so what happens is the determining factor in these people's minds about whether or not God is here is if the music is good and the pastor's funny and there are a lot of people. It had nothing to do with spiritual growth. It had nothing to do with uh, you know, God working in some other way. And, and this is what happens. Here's the problem with this, too. It also leads to this other question. Is there really a moment when God isn't here? Because, and, and this is what happens with this idea when we take it out. When our idea is just that God is there only if there's like this really cool stuff that I like and all these blessings that I enjoy, then all of a sudden we've created this problem where then when those things don't happen, God's not there. And so we start to feel like, well, man, if the music, I mean, somebody hit a wrong note, the preacher was just boring. Man, there was only a few of us here today. Then that means that somehow God wasn't here. And so then what happens is we think that we're in these bad moments, we're in a tragedy when something bad's going on. And God, can't, God is not in this moment. Because when God shows up, it's just blessings. And so we wind up hopeless in these tragic situations because we think God is not there because that's the way we've trained our mind to think. The thought process is often, if God had shown up, then this bad thing would not have happened. That's what Mary and Martha are saying. If God's there, then everything's perfect for us. We're going to be perfectly happy and we're going to have no troubles. I mean, if God shows up, everything is good. We need to recognize that for us and from our viewpoint that that that's not true. Because God tells us he is with us always, even to the end of the age. You see, we have this belief for some reason that God's just going to, whenever we come near a problem, God's just going to like pick us up and, and move us right past that problem and set us down on the other side and we can just be happy. When in reality, we need to remember God is constantly in the business of sustaining his people through difficulty, not just pulling them out of it. He took Noah through the flood. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had, had to get in that furnace. Paul endured beatings and whippings and, and you name it, snake bites, shipwrecks, on and on. He went through it all. And we wouldn't dare say God wasn't with Paul, right? And so we need to realize that God's presence doesn't just equal like, it's not God here equals miracle. Or God here equals what we would consider a blessing. When you remember, his will is not always our will. Quite fact, usually it's the opposite of what we want. We need to realize it works out for his glory and our ultimate good. Now, here's, here's the problem again. God tells us he's with us always, the end of the age. And that does not mean we can be sure he will perform miracles and give us health and wealth. It means we can have faith and peace when we're walking through the difficult. Because he will never leave us or forsake us. And he has made a way for us to spend eternity with him through Christ. So God's presence doesn't just guarantee this miracle. God's presence gives us the ability to walk through the difficulty, and the tragedy, and the heartache. See, a lot of times we tend to think about this again with prayer as well. Oh, well, you know, like, like for instance, again, someone gets hurt and maybe the community rallies around this person praying and they don't make it through. I say, well, God, God might not be real. Right? God's not listening. And it's because, again, we assume that God's presence, God's being there, God's existence towards us just is, is just a miracle factory, giving us all these things that we want. It's not the way it works. And in fact, right, uh, God, God's presence doesn't just equal miracles. Now, sometimes God shows up and there is a miracle and a blessing. And to that we say amen. Every good thing comes from above. And so when we experience a good thing, we know it's from God. 
But sometimes, God is also present in different ways that we don't like. Right? For instance, sometimes God is present in his wrath. Hell is the, is the example of this, right? That we don't always want to think about right, when it comes to God's presence. But let's look at this for a second. I, I've often uh, spoke about this, and I often hear people say that, that hell is the absence of God. And it's not, not entirely true. God is omnipresent. He's everywhere. The psalmist says, if I descend into the pit, you're there. You see, God is present in hell, but he's present as the just judge pouring out his wrath on the condemned. Satan's not doing the punishment. He's being punished. And so what we can realize, even just by the existence of this, is that sometimes God's presence means justice and punishment. So I say this to say, God is here in our midst whether there are two of us here and the internet's out, or there are 2,000 of us and everything runs smoothly. Stop basing your understanding of God's presence on whether or not things seem like they're going good. And recognize he's with you always, through it all. This is why um, it is like absolutely absurd to say, like, Lord, we, we welcome you here. I mean, he's here. We don't have to in- invite him into this room. He is here with us. I've also heard people over the years say, well, you know, wherever two or more are gathered in his name, he's there with us. And, and it's a Bible verse, right? We're not denying that. But what I am saying is that what that passage means in context, what it doesn't mean is that God's not with you if you're one person by yourself doesn't mean if you're the only one there who is gathering in his name that God's not with you. God is with us to the end of the age, and again, he will never leave us or forsake us. And so misconception number two is just to think, listen, guys, God's presence doesn't just guarantee us a miracle. Number three, misconception number three. Martha here assumes that she knows exactly what Jesus is saying to the point that it's almost kind of like a half-listening thing. And we're tend to, we tend to do this, right? The, the best example I can give you is when you hear a sermon on a text that you've heard like a hundred times. Some of us will just say, well, you know, I, I've heard this before. One preacher preaches as good as the next one. That's not necessarily true. Um, in fact, I'd say it's probably just flat out wrong. But uh, you need to realize God's word will apply to you and it's living and active and it, it very well speak to you in a, in a little bit of a different way than it did the last time you heard it. But Martha here, in verses 23 through 27, we see this interchange. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha says, I, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God who is coming into the world. Martha here assumes that Jesus is saying he will raise Lazarus up in the last day. Now we need to realize this was a big debate between the Jews. right? The Pharisees, on one hand, believed in an afterlife. The Sadducees did not. In Bible college, the way they taught us to remember that was sad you sees are sad you see, right? Because they don't believe in an afterlife. But the Jews at this point, right, at the time of Jesus, they generally believed in an afterlife. The Pharisees' thought on this had had generally become kind of the, the common thought of the Jews. And so it seemed that Martha thought Jesus was speaking just to that, right? That there is an afterlife. But Jesus says, oh no. I am the resurrection and the life. If anybody believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live, and everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She says, oh yeah, I believe you're the Christ, the Son of God who's come into the world. Absolutely. Now, that's a good statement, right? You're the Christ. You're the Son of God who's coming into the world. But it would seem that she believes that with some limited capacity because obviously she doesn't believe in his ability to do anything about the situation now. So she's like, yeah, I, yeah, I hear you. Resurrection, 
you're the Christ, I believe this. But in, in her actions and in her words here, we don't see them acting in any sort of way that says that, that, that she believes he has any ability to do something about this situation. The issue here is that Martha assumed she knew what Jesus was saying and didn't pay careful attention kind of to the context here. Jesus has performed tons of miracles. She says she believes he's the Messiah. She knows that whatever he asks of God is done. And yet she say, thinks that what Jesus is saying is not, again, specific in this moment. She seems to think that Jesus has no ability to impact the situation at all. And I would say if she really believed that, she would probably act on it. If you believe that the Messiah is standing right there in front of you and whatever he asks God he'll do, you might ask him something about your brother. Instead of making an assumption about what's happening here. She missed the promise. The point here in Jesus saying this, I'm the resurrection and the life, Jesus holds all of life in his hands. The Bible tells us that all things were created through him, by him, and for him. And here he tells Martha, I am the resurrection and I am life. Yes, he raises up again. But the only way that we have life at all is through him. This life that we live, all things are held together in him. The only way any of us have life is through Christ. He is the life and he has the power over life and death. That's what he's telling her. I'm the resurrection. I literally have the ability, right? This is is what we're talking about here. Resurrection is a good word if you're thinking about a dead relative. He says, I'm life. And the Bible constantly affirms this about Jesus, right? It tells us that he has the authority to lay down his life and to take it up again. Christ is not limited by death. And the ultimate example of this is the fact that he died on the cross for our sins and then rose again. The grave is empty, right? It's gone. There's nothing there. Because Jesus is alive. He's living. He was bodily resurrected. That means his body got back up and breathed again. He lived again. And he still lives He's not limited by any of that death stuff. This is the message, right? When he says, I'm the resurrection and the life, he is talking about having the power over life and death. He holds it all in his hands. And yet Martha thought she had this situation all figured out. She assumed she knew what Jesus was saying and what was going to happen. In reality, she missed the context and she missed the meaning. Jesus has already said multiple times, I go to awaken Lazarus. He will rise again. We're seeing these things played out. She assumed that the situation was over and done with. And I, mean, I like to think that if I was walking with Jesus in those days, I would have had the sense to say, I mean, you can't, you never know what this guy's going to do. And this is something that we will often do as well. And this can work kind of both ways, under or overestimating or realizing his promises. Right? Like sometimes we'll think, we read something, and in the scripture, and we'll just assume we know what it's about. We know what it's about. Like, for instance, um, you know, there, there's one of the promises that I would go to is when we talk about whatever we pray in his name, we'll receive. We tend to think, oh, well, that means that if I just pray hard enough in his name, that I'll get what I want. We look at, again, the the one where we see the person who is frequently petitioning God, right? Going back over and over, right? The parable. Just keep asking, just keep asking. Maybe I can wear God down. If I just keep going, I'll annoy him enough that he'll give me what I want. Sometimes we'll overestimate and overassume his promise, right? Like Isaiah 53, 5 is a perfect example of this. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and by his wounds... We are healed. And there have been people throughout the years who use this wrongly to say that because Jesus died on the cross that we are healed of all physical ailments if we just believe enough in him. It's not physical healing. People who try to say we can have healing over any physical illness in this world by claiming this, right? That's, this is obviously spiritual, right? Christ's work on the cross and only through Christ's work on the cross are we healed and cleansed from the penalty of our sins, 
He took the punishment we deserved and we received his righteousness by grace through faith in him. When we believe in Christ, follow him and repent of our sins, we are saved. And so what I'm saying here is that proper interpretation is key. Don't just assume we know exactly what's going to happen and how things are going to play out. Because we know that the best laid plans of mice and men, man, they often go awry. We think we know what's going to happen. But we don't know. We make plans, good plans. And we think that they will surely happen and then something comes out of nowhere and hits us. Or on the other hand, we think that it's all over and then boom. God does something we would have never seen coming. I've seen that in my own life. And I'm sure many of you have as well. So don't just assume we know exactly what Jesus is going to do and exactly what he means. Put it in context. We can know exactly what he's saying in God's word. right? Don't hear me say that, that we can't know what Jesus is saying in his word. We can clearly know what he's saying. But we've got to put it in context and understand it. Dive in there. Read it. Know it. Interpret it the right way. Don't just assume we have it all figured out. Our fourth misconception, I promise we're moving quickly here, is that the situation is hopeless. This is... We'll look at the, f- the fifth one very quickly after this. But number four, the situation is hopeless. People are weeping. Right? This is the situation we're at. Mary comes out. They go out there. They're by the tomb. What happens? She talks to Jesus, says the same things. Martha's been saying, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother wouldn't have died. But verse 33 through 36 here. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. This word for weeping here is like funeral wailing. That's the the idea behind it. Funeral wailing. Mary, all the folks, they're out here and they're weeping and they're wailing. Y'all ever been to a funeral where there was wailing? Uh, As a pastor, funerals are are just the norm. right? Unfortunately, we go to a lot of funerals. And a lot of times you'll go to funerals that are entirely secular or it'll be a funeral where there's someone who is like lost and they might have like one believing family member who's invited me and that's why I'm there. Um, and sometimes, you know, you'll just get called from the funeral home and they'll say, hey, listen, we don't have anybody to do this funeral. Would you do it? And um, as one of my professors told me, you know, have Bible, will preach, you know, that's the motto. So you show up and you, you're at this place, but what happens is that these are also the worst why? I mean, it is, it is usually just this wailing emotion. I can't tell you that most of the funerals that I go to that are not Christian funerals are usually characterized by just this awful weeping and crying, and it just, it's a lot. Now, I'm not attacking these people for doing this, but what I'm saying is like it, it's indicative of something. What's the difference? And the answer is hopelessness, right? Like, that's the difference. They're wailing and, and, and just screaming and crying and screeching because it's hopeless. But here in this text, this word is being used for this, this is wailing, screeching, weeping, awful crying. And this is used of people who love God and at the very least knew their friend and brother would live again in eternity. Now again, I'm not saying we shouldn't cry at funerals at all. That's not what I'm saying. But what I'm saying here is that we should not be hopeless and mourn like hopeless people. Paul instructs us on this in 1 Thessalonians 4.13 and 14. He says, We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others who do not have hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. We don't mourn like people who have no hope. And yet, that is exactly what seems to be going on here. These people, again, Lord, if you had just been here, if you would have hurried up and got over here. We, We know about all this resurrection stuff, but if you had just been here, this wouldn't have happened. And now they're weeping. They're screaming. They're wailing. Another issue that we don't take seriously enough is the hope that we do have. See, Martha acknowledged again, Lazarus will be raised for eternity, but this didn't satisfy her at all. And it should. Especially for us, right? Like, I know a lot of believers, this is the same situation. 
where at their funeral, you know, we'll talk about the, the hope that they have that, that their loved one who is a believer is in, in heaven. They'll say, oh yeah, yeah, that's great. But that's the end of it. There's no comfort in that. And I'm, all I'm saying is that we need to have more comfort in the fact that our eternity is secure than we often do. We have hope. We have a living hope. It is never hopeless because believers can never be separated from our living hope, not even by death, because he holds all things in his hands, and so there is no situation in which we should be hopeless. But you look at these verses, you say, well, Jesus wept. Does that mean he was hopeless, right? Like, obviously not. Jesus wept, perhaps one of the most famous Bible verses, just because of its brevity, but the depth that we see here is amazing. Let me tell you one reason I don't think Jesus is weeping here. And that's because Lazarus is dead. And I don't think he's weeping over Lazarus being dead because he has very clearly said, this is going to be for the glory of God. I will go to awaken him. He will rise again. So Jesus knows what's going to happen. And if you know this, man, I, I would tend to think you'd be a little excited because everybody's about to see. Not weeping over the fact that he's dead. He knows this is a temporary situation. What Jesus is weeping over here is the hopelessness of the people. The sheer hopelessness and the language informs that here. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he's deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? And they said, Lord, come and see. And he wept. Jesus here is deeply moved or groans in the spirit when he sees their weeping. Now, we think of that word, we tend to think of like a pained moan or something like that. When in reality, the Jews use this word to mean snort like a horse. And so what this means is not that Jesus snorted like a horse necessarily, but it means it was more of a, a, a frustrated sigh or a groan than a pained one. The word here for weep is not the same word as the wailing from the other people, but rather it's more of a quiet and reserved cry. And so the image here is that Jesus has a deep sigh and a few tears. He sees their weeping and he sighs. He says, where have you laid him? And he has a few tears streaming down his face. The image here, again, is that, and this reveals his humanity, and again, it reveals his love because it shows the love he has for his people. A people who should not be hopeless. Again, he's not crying over Lazarus. He's told multiple folks he's going to awaken and raise him. He knew this was for the glory of God. There was no reason for him to cry over the death of Lazarus because he knew he would raise him again. But there is every reason for Jesus to be pained by the hopelessness of his people and by their misunderstanding the hope that they have in him. There is no situation that is hopeless with Christ. Certainly not death. And I love, we were talking about the Puritans earlier when we were reading the Valley of Vision. Their, their thoughts on death were just fascinating. Because they viewed it as not this painful, terrible thing, the end. But rather they saw it as the beginning. Where all our sins are washed away. Where all our pain is washed away. And where now we can live as we are intended to with God. We have, again, a living hope. First Peter tells us of this. It's caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Jesus is the resurrection. He is the life. And when we are dead sinners, having someone who is the resurrection and the life is exactly what we need. And it provides us hope that can never be shaken. As we conclude, I want to just show you this final one. And that is underestimating his power. We often underestimate Christ's power. Again, verse 37 here. Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? This is a rhetorical question. What they're doing is saying, surely this guy, if he, I mean, if he was really able to open the eyes of the blind, he should be able to save this guy from dying, right? He could have stopped death. 
That's the wrong question to be asking. What they should have asked is, could not this man who's opened the eyes of the blind raise him from the dead? See, they underestimated Christ's power. They thought that Christ was only good at stopping the bad thing, right? Like stopping death. And they didn't realize that in reality it was much greater than that, that he could raise Lazarus and indeed he could save his people. They assume since Lazarus is dead, Jesus can't do anything. Friends, there is no situation in which Jesus can do nothing. Jesus is not bound by anything except his holiness, his character. He has all authority and he is all powerful. So recognize today that whatever situation you find yourself in, we don't serve a weak God, but a powerful living God in whom we can have hope. He has overcome the grave. 1 Corinthians asks, where's the sting, death? Where's the victory? Christ has defeated death. The Bible tells us of his power to save even to the uttermost. And so if you are here today and you're saying, man, I am in a tragic situation. I am, I am hopeless. It seems like God is not here. He's not working. It feels like he is distant and behind. Know that there is no situation in which he is hopeless or which we are hopeless. And there's no situation in which he is unable to act. But we need to realize that acting is for his glory and our ultimate good. Guys, don't buy into these lies. They're from the devil. They are lies that will deceive you and they will make you hopeless. Instead, let's have hope in our great God and our great Savior. Because as we'll see next week, Lazarus lived again. And when we place our faith in Christ by his grace, we too spiritually live again. Lazarus would ultimately die again, right? Jesus raised him and guess what? He lived a life and he died. But for eternity, by placing his faith in Christ, he's saved. And friends, the same is true for us. So whether you're just in a hopeless situation as a believer, recognize it's not really hopeless. Or you feel like you're in a hopeless situation because you've sinned so much and how could God possibly love you? That situation is not hopeless either. May the Lord do his will by his grace for his glory. Let's pray. God, we love you, we thank you, and we praise you for your great word and your goodness to us. Lord, we thank you that we do not have a hopeless situation and a weak God, but Lord, we have a hopeful situation and a sovereign, powerful, mighty God who is capable to do whatsoever he pleases. So Lord, help us to rest in this truth. Help us to cling to you. And Lord, may your will be done in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Bellevue Baptist Gadsden Podcast. We would love for you to join us on campus for worship Sunday mornings at 1045. We look forward to seeing you. Have a great week.